As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. You can get in touch with the show via the new Twitter account, at The Phil Hay Show. My name's Dan Moylan, and today, joined by my colleague from the Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Phil Hay, recovering from his surgery he had at the end of April. Phil is now back at home, pleased to report, and recuperating from his surgery, so hopefully back here before long. Before Phil was off, we recorded a a top 10 signings feature that's going to run every week for 10 weeks, so you will still hear Phil's voice on the podcast. We started that one last week. This week, we will bring you Phil's number nine signing. Uh, But when Phil is absent, we've got guests in from the world of Leeds United. Next week is going to be Josh Warrington in the studio. But this week, very warm welcome to the Leeds United Chief Exec, Angus Kinnear. Hi, great to be here. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. You can enjoy great analysis, in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all these podcasts. Uh, George Colkin did the match report for the Spurs game at the weekend, so we're going to be having a quick chat with George in a little bit to find out what he made of it all. If you want to read George's match report, you can go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to take advantage of the special 40% discount. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Into the football then. And here we get a football executive on to talk about all the stuff that's been happening on the field and working with one of the world's elite coaches. So I think this is where we give you enough rope to hang yourself, basically. I was going well. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's great. Um, no, I think um, I think the Spurs result was just a sort of, it felt for everybody at the club, a culmination of four years work and to beat, you know, one of the top sides with the, you know, the attacking threat they had and to beat them so comprehensively in the style that Marcelo's made his own as now, you know, part of the Leeds footballing DNA was superb. And the only disappointment was the fans weren't there because I think when Rodrigo smashed in the third goal, you know, you really wanted to see the, the full crowd leap up and down rather than just getting flattened by Victor which is what happened. He knows what he's doing, does Marcelo, doesn't he? Unchanged side. Because the fans, uh, you know, if you, I mean, I, I take it you don't indulge in reading on Twitter the, the the panic and the anxiety that washes over the fans when you see an unchanged side from a side that's lost down at Brighton for whatever reason. There is that part of the fan base that goes, oh God, oh God, oh God. I think it's definitely a case of, uh, of you know, we have to all trust in him and he's, he's proven that he's deserving of our trust. I think when you're uh, when you're in an executive position talking to a coach who's you know got the type of experience that he has, you know, who am I to kind of question him? But obviously, it's part of our our job and Victor and my job to discuss 
where we need to strengthen? Are we taking the right approach? And uh, you know, the bit that supporters don't see is um, how compelling his arguments are for each of his of each of his decisions. You know, you just come out losing every single debate <laughs> because it's all completely fact based. It has insights that even Victor and I have been in the game a long time can't see. And we always feel that he's he's doing exactly the right thing, and we go into games with you know absolute confidence. And he knew that he would put right what happened at uh, at Brighton, and uh, and he did. What have you debated about with Marcelo Bielsa? We talk about the transfer window. We talk about uh, you know movement between the under twenty threes. He's very very open into into terms of how the how the team play. We had a, a, a brilliant discussion I think the night before the West Ham game about uh, how we defended set pieces. Obviously, there was a lot of discussion at the time. We weren't defending them well enough, and I think that was that was apparent. But when you saw the the depth of analysis he put into why the issues occurred and how he was gonna how he was gonna solve them, every time you leave the room thinking we've got exactly the right man to to solve this issue, and you know no more so than at the last end of last season when we sat down for his review of the season, he took us through all the stats, and uh, I remember leaving with uh, with with Victor and Andrea and saying, you know, this guy will categorically get us promoted, and in a league as difficult as the championship to have that level of confidence. But I just felt there is no way after the season we've had and with this man in charge that we, that we won't go up. Only promoted because of COVID though. You've got to, uh, got to you, I presume that that featured in your, in your plans as well, of course. Yes. Yeah. No, that's uh, that was a uh, uh, fairly, uh, fairly frustrating, but I think, uh, I think, I think we overcame, that was another, another obstacle we overcame rather than something that helped us. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Can you give us an insight into what sort of information he showed you then when he's saying, right, well, we're not defending set pieces well enough. What can we do about this? This is the solution. I mean, obviously, you don't have to give us the full granular thing, but just an idea of well, what he shows. It's two hours. So, 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 so that's the first thing. I mean, that's how comprehensive it is. And it's pages and pages of information. And it is viewing the team as a collective, viewing the team as, as individuals. Um, his coaching staff had analysed every single header that we'd lost across the course of the season and the reasons, and then categorise why we had lost those headers. Were we marking the wrong person? Was the matchup wrong? Um, was the person not, not attacking the ball properly? Were we in the wrong position? Were we not set up properly from the free kick? It is so granular. I mean, it really is a case of, of no stone being left, left unturned. And in the end, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, you just have to accept that he has, he has so much more information than you have and understands the game so much better that he's much better placed to, to make the right decision than, than any of us are. Let's talk about some of the characters who featured then in the Spurs game. Stuart Dallas, who's opened the scoring after 13 minutes. What a season he's had. I mean, who would have thought that he would become the player that he's become? Yeah, I remember a supporter telling me um, uh, you know, probably two seasons ago that you know the good thing about Stuart Dallas was that he could play in lots of different positions. And the bad thing about Stuart Dallas was he was rubbish in all of them. <laughs> um, and I think this year, he's, I mean, he's just, I mean, he is a, for me, he's a world-class player, you know, on the wing, a fullback, a number eight He's certainly my player of the my player of the season, as I'm sure is for many others. But but the lovely thing about him is he hasn't changed at all. And I think that's one of the things that the, the supporters won't see is, you know, the team that we inherited and a number of those characters like Liam, like Calvin, uh, like Luke and and Stuart, they haven't changed at all. And they've gone from I think what they were viewed as as lower, lower level championship players to top half of the of the of the Premier League players. And and you know, they, they're not through their by luck, they're through talent and, and hard work. But they're just the same group of guys who love football and love playing together. And, you know, I think as a, as a collective, you know, Victor and, uh, and Andrea and I, we just couldn't be prouder or more happy that those, those individuals are still part of the squad and still so central to it. Because I think there's probably the thought that they would become more peripheral as you sign, you know, a German international centre-half and a Spanish international centre-half and the Spanish number nine. But in fact, if you look across this season, you know, Luke, Liam, 
Calvin and Stuart have been they've been cornerstones of what we've of what's made us successful. I'd agree with that. It feels very much like they carry the heart and soul of the club at the minute. Is that part of the the diligence that goes into new signings as well? Whether they're going to fit in the dressing room? So there is, as well as all the technical, as well as all the technical data, there is there is a we call it you know it's like an emotional filter that we that we put people through. As you know, do do people have the the psychological mindset to deal with playing for Leeds United, for playing for Marcelo Bielsa, to the training regime, and that's increasingly important because we can find people who've got all the technical assets but don't have the attitude that we need. And it's a very specific attitude you need to be able to play for Marcelo and be coached by Marcelo. And um, I think it's a real credit to Victor that um, in Diego, Rodrigo and the other signings we've made this season, they've all fitted in perfectly to that. We have no prima donnas, no no people who are coming in thinking they're superstars. We've got people who are prepared to work as hard as anybody else and and fight for their place. And I think you you know, you see that particularly with with Rodrigo who I think we'll be starting more games ultimately, but is is there fighting for his fighting for his place and and never complaining about the position he's in. When Son scored the equaliser then at the weekend, and then you saw that the Harry Kane VAR offside, ridiculous, isn't it? It's 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 a nonsense. I mean, VAR VAR is a is a nonsense. I've got absolute. I mean, it's a, it's a personal pos- uh, opinion and perhaps not reflective of everybody at the club, but for me, it has no part in the game. It's and and I think when fans come back, they'll see it because. You know, being at matches and a goal being scored and not knowing whether it's being, you know, a goal or not is going to happen increasingly, and that won't work. I, I think for full stadia. But for me, it's all about the spirit of the game. And I saw the, I was obviously delighted it was it was offside, but I saw the Harry Kane decision three or four times in slow motion with the lines being applied across it, and I still think he's onside. And I think certainly in the spirit of the game, he's onside, as was Helder Costa, as was Patrick Bamford early in the season for us. It's going to need something which is going to need to be changed and re-looked at and everyone's going to have to remember ultimately we are you know, football's about entertainment and, and emotion and you know re-celebrating a goal after it's been through a four minute VAR check is something that no one wants to experience Ryan Mason's obviously got right in the, the spirit of being a manager by moaning endlessly <laughs> about it which I mean, he's right to as you say it is a goal as far as I'm concerned as well I don't think anyone watching it would have felt aggrieved if it had been it had been given but behind the scenes does Marcelo have an opinion on it because Outwardly, he never says a thing about referees or decisions, does he? He just he just kind of bats everything off and talk, wants to talk about actual football. Because of his focus, he is he's very much on focusing on controlling the controllables and anything which he sees which is outside his sphere of influence, he's not interested in because he thinks there's so much he can control. And I don't mean just on the pitch, I mean the environment in the training ground or, or, or the environment more generally around the club. So he just doesn't offer an opinion on uh, VAR. And I think it's one of the things that has probably made leads an attractive proposition this season is that we're not there moaning. I mean, we've lost some games and we've lost some games handsomely and we've lost some games with some bad decisions, but Marcelo just doesn't, you know, just doesn't complain. And actually that's a a sort of spirit which is then taken up through the rest of the club. And if you see the post-match interviews, you know, whether it's Patrick, you know, they will express their disappointment about it, but it's, it's not real a campaign. And, And to be honest, it shouldn't be because the way, you know, where VAR will get solved is at the administrative level with our meetings with the PG MOL and, and the um and, and the Premier League and having those debates and discussions. So I think, you know, Marcelo is, you know, does the right thing in trying to re- remain above that. Leeds United on the moral high ground. It's n- it's a nice place to be looking down on the rest of it. <laughs> it, it, it no, I mean it's it's uh you know, we, we wanted to try and, you know, I think Andrea wanted to try and create a club which still had um was true to our heritage and had that you know, was outspoken and had some aggression. You know, was not trying to be loved, but at the same time, I think you know we all realised if we could get the club pointing in the right direction because of the scale of the city and the scale of the fan base and the heritage, it would be a um, 
it would be a story that that people would would engage with. You know, if we got us if we got us moving where we want to be. Patrick Bamford then puts us um, two one up just before half time. Beautiful movement to the near post. Big fan of that. And he's answered some fairly major questions about him this year. The faith that everyone's had in in, in Patrick around the club is is completely different to the media in my opinion. You know, the players know he's a great player. Marcelo has always had absolute absolute faith faith in him. Patrick has had amazing faith in himself. You know, when he's when there's so much doubt about him, and and you know, I don't like the fact that it's the doubt's not just about his playing credentials, but it's it's sort of linked to his background and the fact he's he's slightly different. And I don't think it's an, an acceptable approach, but he's just proved everybody wrong and. The joy that the club feel, you know, every time he scores across the club is, is amazing because we sort of feel we're collectively proving everybody wrong. And, you know, he's, he's shown he is a, he's a top player, not, not least, you know, in his work rate and, and, and the build-up play. But I think if you add goals to assists, he's right up there with the top players in the division. And I think as fans, we're getting there as well. We're learning. We see that Marcelo Bielsa makes players better. Because like, you think a footballer at 26, 27 can't get any better when actually... We've seen evidence with our own eyes. Look at Stuart Dallas, look at Patrick Bamford. They continue to get better over this this two or three years that Bielsa's been here. And I think that's one of the key differences with Marcelo. And it's probably what a lot of coaches across across the game need to be looking at as, you know, as a metric, how are they doing it in terms of improving individual players? And I think, you know, Marcelo's track record of doing that is is second to none. And I don't think there's a player at the club who he hasn't transformed since he since he arrived. And have we snuck through a one year extension on his contract without telling anybody? Marcelo always waits till the end of the season before uh, before um, he makes his intentions known. I, I was talking about Bamford, sorry. Oh, you're talking about Patrick. Yes, um, and Patrick, I think we... Uh, we well, let's do both. Oh, we want to do both? <laughs> I'll set myself up there. Um, so, Kinnear own goal. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think Patrick um, is in a good place and we want him for the long term um, and we know there's interest from from other places. So, you know, I'm very confident about... about uh, where we'll end up with Patrick and um and you know similarly with Marcelo as well we're all collectively as a club working towards the future and the contractual elements aren't aren't key to that there's a, you know everyone's working on the bigger picture so was that a yes or a no to the one year extension that was done last summer i think it was suitably vague i thought i handled it quite well <laughs> you did but i just really like whilst an not whilst not answering <laughs> it was a politician's answer I think it, you know the, it, both of their uh, positions will be will be announced in the in the near future, and that will give everybody clarity. Yeah. Uh, and Rodrigo, as you mentioned before, he's had a really tough season coming in with a lot of expectation on his shoulders as well because of the price tag and at the age that he's at, he needs to deliver immediately. Again, a nice feeling of redemption around coming on and scoring that goal late on against Spurs. I think um, again, you know, there's you know nobody is doubting the impact that Rodrigo's going to have i think when you make the the signings that we've made some people have come on and uh, and performed almost immediately and i think you know Rafinha's over you know over delivered above our above our expectations we still think there's much more to come from Rodrigo you know i wouldn't be surprised if he's you know if he's player of the season next year he's he's an absolute top talent and i think if you look at Rafinha and Rodrigo and then the 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 two center halves that we brought you know we've we've put four world class players into the heart of the Leeds United team when you sign someone like Rafinha, how long do you pat yourself on the back for it? Is it still going on at the club? Are you still, do you still look around and, and kind of think, how have we managed to do this? Like he, because he he is above expectations, isn't he? I know I know the clips of him look brilliant and everything, but for the way he's come and just torn into the league straight away, is I think it's amazing. I mean, it's a testament to the way the recruitment team work, and I've I've talked about previously how they're sort of two lists of targets. There are a list of targets who we think are available and we're actively pursuing, and then there are lists of targets who we think are are not available and therefore not worth pursuing, but we we keep watching 
um, for any any changes. And Rafina was a player who whose availability changed late in the window, and we had to respond very quickly. And we got the backing of Andrea and uh, the 49ers to to make that transfer, which sat outside the budgets that we were we were, we were planning for. But I think he is. He's, he's a perfect example of where the, of where recruitment works because it's not just about the talent he has. It's not just about the potential. It's not just about the value for money that we've I think we've secured in terms of it being a, a longer term investment. But uh, mentally, he has exactly the right attitude to play for Marcelo. You know, he's whilst he has flair and talent and ability, he is also incredibly driven, incredibly aggressive, and an ideal you know Marcelo Bielsa player. Full time then, handshakes all round between players or bumping elbows, whatever the the convention is now. How are things with Daniel Levy uh, at full time, given all that's happened with the ESL? And we'll get onto that in, in part two. But um, was there any frost in the air? The, the the director's box at Leeds United is always a cordial and welcoming place. I think there probably was an element of discomfort from uh, from the visiting directors, but you know we we, we kept it very friendly. But uh, as with many of the other fourteen clubs. There is an increased sense of satisfaction with every victory over the uh, the big six, and obviously since the um, since the Super League um, failed, uh, Leeds United has fared particularly well amongst those clubs. And the Premier League for next season is now taking shape. Um, we've seen West Brom and Fulham both dropped this week. The other two two teams that were promoted with us. What do you think it says about? And it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but what do you think it says about our achievement and our approach this season? I think uh, statistically, there's a there's a fifty percent chance of going down in your in your first season, and one that we should be aware of. There's also a fifty percent chance of going down in your second season. So you really have to survive first the first two seasons before you can, you know, look to properly can uh, consolidate. The risks are significant, and you know, Fulham have gone up and down, and you'll see near Norwich. Same with Norwich, and the same with Watford, and that was something we were convinced we didn't want to do. And the strategy was twofold. One was to overinvest in the first season, and I think we spent more money in the first season of any promoted team with the exception of maybe Wolves or it was on a, on a par with Wolves and it was really to overcommit and build a squad that would last us two to three years and the second thing was to be true to our footballing DNA and the and the way we played and not go out and try and try and draw against the big teams and sneak winners against the teams around us it was to play every team with the same flamboyance and confidence and take the initiative in every match and uh, I think we've proved to a lot of promoted teams that that's a that's a route that you should be able to take you don't need to come and and be nervous and conservative you can come and be flamboyant and take these teams on and I think we've got a fantastic record against the teams around us I think it's you know one of the best in the league which was which is what you need to make sure you stay up but we've also shown with the victory at Main Road and beating Tottenham and beating Leicester and um, not letting anybody beat us not let any of the top teams beat us at um, Ellen Road that you can turn up in this league and, and compete. And I think that approach has been key to the difference between perhaps where we are and some of the teams that have gone back straight back down. When it comes to the overall health of the league, one of Michael's great fears was always that it would collapse completely when we got back up there. And we, we I guess we dipped our toes in uh, in those waters with the European Super League. But the TV deal as well, there's always a fear that because everything is underpinned by TV money, that if that ever collapsed, and we've seen it go actually down in value very slightly domestically, haven't we? But the foreign rights have gone the other way. They've gone up. It's been reported in the last 24, 48 hours in the Financial Times that the broadcast deal is going to be rolled over for another three years, which, if assuming that happens, will be good news for Leeds because you can start to plan and there's a little bit more stability. Yeah, I think that the stability is key and I think the, the, the league has that stability. 
there were two schools of thought. One was that perhaps the TV values were going to fall away. The other one from from earlier was that perhaps the new entrance into the market, whether that's Amazon, YouTube, DAZN, that, that would create more competition and, and the rights would go up. In fact, we've ended up somewhere in the middle. But for us, it gives us it gives us surety um, and it gives a, a platform that we can plan against from a, from a budgetary perspective. So we're very pleased about how the league's doing, particularly with the uncertainty that Project Big Picture and the Super League cause to, to emerge from that with, with confidence for the next three years is important for Leeds United. Just in the post-COVID TV environment, do you see any changes for around the three o'clock blackout at the moment? Because obviously we're, we're at a stage now where everyone has got used to being able to watch every single game. Do you think that's something that might might change or...? It's always been under threat. I think. I think from a governmental and FA le- at an FA level, it's seen as a sort of sacrosanct pillar of the domestic football environment that that we're not going to put games on at the same time that League One and League Two are playing matches. So I think I think that will stay for the for the near future, but it will be, continue to be under threat. And you know, as somebody who's watched football at every levels of the pyramid, I think clearly there is there is more value to be generated if you could show games at three o'clock and show more Premier League games. But I think there's actually something quite nice about the fact that Accrington Stanley versus Morecambe doesn't have to compete with Liverpool versus Manchester United on TV. I'm um, talking about financial issues, should we say. Uh, Penny, for your thoughts on what's happening at Derby County, because, you know, they're off our radar right now. They're not our problem. We had a, a flirtation with them when we were in the championship, obviously, with the playoff semifinals. And the financial stuff that's currently in the news relates to when we were in that same division. And we've got out of that division even though we posted quite a big loss in the accounts, am I right in saying that we were compliant with FFP, sorry, profit and sustainability when we got promoted? Yeah, we, we, we stay compliant with, with PNS all the way through and that wasn't something we were ever going to breach. It was going to be one of our principles that if we were going to go up, we were going to go up within the, within the rules. Fundamentally, the rules aren't fit for purpose. They're not clear. They're incredibly, they're incredibly open to be gamed, which is what some of these, these teams have been done, have, have done. And then because of the way they're structured, it's impossible to put the sanctions in the season where the, where, the, where the penalty happened. And it's going to be a ridiculous scenario now if Derby get punished for something they did two years ago after even this season's, this season's finished. So they need to be rethought and, and reconsidered. And I think they can, be, they can be simpler. They can be structured better. And most importantly, they need to come with in-season sanctions so that if you break them, you get punished in the season, you break them and not two or three years afterwards. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Uh, George, thanks for coming on the show. You're normally the Athletics Newcastle guy, which is why we wanted to get you on this show because you wrote the match report for the Leeds Spurs game. I did, and what an absolute, what an absolute thrill it was to be there. Just felt like uh, felt like I got there right for the peak, which is um, very very unusual for me because normally I'm surrounded by kind of Newcastle based misery, and so I had to kind of dust off positive adjectives um <laughs> which was a bit of a which was a bit of a change for me but yeah god i, lo- I loved it i was i ve- felt very lucky to be there for that for that much 
Yeah, I wanted to get you on because you're an out, an outsider. I use the term, you know, in air quotes, uh, an outsider yeah, yeah. who doesn't see us all the time. How good have we got it at the minute? Do you think? Well, I mean, if that was a if that was a case study, then then really good. You know, I've, I've sort of thought that I've always thought that one of the kind of great sadnesses of this season is the fact that you know we haven't got the proper Ellen Road this season. You know, there's been that sort of great great story about Leeds coming back under Bielsa, and you know, I. I know from my from my time as an away fan, which is going back, you know, a long, long time, 25 years ago, but just what a force of nature a full Ellen Road can be. I mean, terrifying. I mean, I mean that in a positive way. And I just wish it had been, you know, I wish it had been full at the weekend because I just it would A, it would have been great for Leeds fans to have actually seen that performance, but also that's so much part of what I associate Leeds the club with, just that noise and that bouncing hostile arena and it would just would have been would have been brilliant but I mean as I wrote in my piece I mean I think the thing is you know we might have silence all around us at the moment but this isn't a quiet Leeds team they play like cannon fire and it just feels to me as an outsider as you say but it feels to me that this is just the perfect embodiment of club and place that okay this is you know we're seeing Bielsa who is I guess always presented as sort of this maverick manager but it was that great quote he said afterwards you know despite what everybody thinks I'm in love with tradition and he's he's made Leeds Leeds I mean he's made Leeds Leeds plus that's how it feels to me I think I think the, the biggest compliment I can give is that for a few moments in that match I actually forgot there was nobody there and I suppose that's um that's quite difficult I mean as a guy who covers Newcastle follows Newcastle presumably it felt a little bit like day release for you uh, with all the stuff that's been going on up there yeah, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of great treats. I'm, I'm not the sort of day to day Newcastle correspondent. That's Chris Chris Woff, but I, you know, they do feature largely in in my job. And I guess because of the sort of pandemic and COVID, we've all been more restrict, restricted. So I've been doing more on Newcastle than you know than I kind of want to in a perfect world. I'd like to go out and do other things and see other people. And it just felt like a treat. I mean, it just felt like a treat to be at least Newcastle. Obviously, have just played very, very well against um, against Leicester, by the way. Probably the best performance under Steve Bruce. But yeah, um, it was just great. It was great to feel that sense of a club with an identity as well. And that's, you know, I know that's a bit of a kind of wanky word, but I do think it's important. And, you know, everybody knows what Leeds stands for. Everybody, you know, historically. And I think they know what Leeds stands for now as well. And I just think that's, I just think that's kind of very, very powerful. Well, we look forward to hopefully hostilities being renewed inside Stadia next season. St. James's and Ellen Road are always a treat when the two clubs swap over because it is a local derby, particularly for Newcastle in that there's nobody uh, nearer, is there really? So um, it's always a good a good one, that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the sort of dream, isn't it? It's to have, it's to have our stadiums full again and to have the, those big, noisy, raucous occasions. I mean, I'm, I don't know what, you know, I know that I'm very lucky to have been to games. I've been to a few at St. James's and each one feels like a kind of heartbreak, feels like a heartbreaker to me because I go there and all I can sort of see is these 11 people playing, you know, usually pretty disjointed football in the mid distance. And I'm struggling to find kind of meaning from that. And I kind of realised that, I knew this anyway, but I sort of realised that you know, it's people that sort of really interest me about football. And, you know, we all know what that should sound and feel like. And I just can't wait to get that again. Yeah, fingers crossed we're back to normal next season. George, thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Loved it. Cheers. And if you want to catch George's article, the match report on the Leeds Spurs game, have a look on The Athletic. If you're not yet subscribed, you can find the link 
at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. It's always nice when we speak to you because it's a chance to take the temperature inside Ellen Road as we close out our first Premier League season. It's been a good one, but the whole thing all came under threat with the European Super League because it's the thing that's, well, it was disruptive to the entire football pyramid and it provoked a huge response and Leeds United were right at the front of it. So can you give us a little insight into what that was like from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, from a, from a personal perspective, you know, I wake up every day thinking, how do I do the best for Leeds United? That's my top priority. And this was unusual because I actually think the threat of the European Super League and, and what the clubs were planning was just so much bigger than Leeds United and actually threatened everything that I love about football and have, have, have grown up loving. And, you know, what, my, what I want my son to love as well. I think I've, I've watched Luton Town in every division from the top to the, to the conference. I've seen them at 98 league grounds. So it's a bizarre statement, you know, but, but like most English fans, I, I love the football pyramid. I think it's, it's, you know, it's sacrosanct. It, shouldn't, it should never be challenged. And the thought that, that one day Man City might be again playing in, in League Two or that Notts County, you know, this club in the country might once again be playing in the Champions League. Those are all things that we should, we should celebrate and, and value. So I was so, I think with everybody in the club, we were just so angry about what had happened because it was an attack on the game we love, but it was also an attack on the club. Um, you know, we've worked really hard over the last four years to get back to be playing against these these teams. And I think what you've got to realise about the Super League, not only did it prevent us or would have prevented us ever getting into Europe or into meaningful European competition again, but it would have also made a mockery of the, of the, of the Premier League because the, the, the revenues that these clubs were going to drive and guarantee themselves would have made pretty much every match in the Premier League a, a dead rubber. And how However poor Arsenal's recruitment was or Man United's recruitment was, they'd have so much money it wouldn't it, it wouldn't matter. And as a result, I think the cascade down the leagues would have been you know hugely damaged as well. So I don't think there was a level of surprise in terms of the intent because we know that the the, the ownerships of those of those big six clubs they do want to create an oligopoly. They do want it to be a cartel. Um, they don't want to be inconvenienced by the fact that their European positions might be challenged and and that's going to have impacts on their revenues. They want to run it with a with a business that they see as sustainable and has certainty. But I think we were surprised by just the the brazen and Machiavellian nature of of what they did so soon after they uh, Project Big Picture, which was a very similar similar attack. The good news was was the reaction of the of the and I don't like the phrase, but the football family across Europe and to the level of disgust and anger about it. And particularly, you know, particular credit to the supporters trusts and the fan groups of the clubs involved because I think it's hard to come out publicly when you're when your club's done something wrong and sort of you know and speak against against them but I thought the supporters trusts of those clubs did a great job I thought the players who came out and spoke against it you know I think James Milner started it at the game we had against Liverpool it's made it very clear to those clubs and the footballing authorities and the government what's important about British football and what can't change and actually I think it's going to push the game towards a, a better more solid and fairer future. How did you find out? Was it like the rest of us? We'd we'd heard um, some we heard we'd heard some rumours um, that it was that it was going to emerge, but it, it seemed to be moving so quickly that I couldn't believe that it was it was going to be delivered in in the way it was it was it was delivered, and then I couldn't believe that it was delivered in as half-assed a way as it was delivered because I was I mean in the meetings we were having with the Premier League, I was saying you know we shouldn't underestimate these clubs. They are you know they're run by intelligent, successful people. They've got financiers and lawyers and they will have thought through and, and communications experts and they will have thought through this but clearly they they hadn't so uh it actually becoming public was when was the first time that the clubs that any of the other clubs found out for sure that it was definitely definitely happening and, and that from our perspective you know the other clubs are fellow shareholders of the premier league 
we all have a commitment with the Premier League to uh, to work in the best interest of the Premier League and, 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 and fellow shareholders. And they've clearly breached those agreements. Leaving aside the, I guess, the moral aspects of it, do you think it fundamentally would have worked as an idea? Because I think, I think one thing that came through from a lot of football fans was the feeling that it just sounded rubbish, apart from anything, as a competition and as something to watch the Premier League and relegation promotion, it's a tried and trusted thing and everyone loves it. And it felt like this may have had legs for a couple of years and then it would have maybe just faded. I think that's that was actually, it, I mean, it's fundamental issues was, was, fundamental issues were twofold. One was that it struck against competition. Actually, supporters like competition. Obviously, you want your team to be doing to be doing well, but the, the joy that Man City are getting of winning the league or the joy that we had from winning the championship was we were, knew we were in a huge, hugely competitive league and what we achieved actually meant something. I think the second thing is from a from a product standpoint, I mean, if you speak to the fans from the clubs involved, Arsenal fans don't want to watch Arsenal finish bottom of a of a Super League, losing to Barcelona four times a season. And actually, that you know the domestic game and you know travelling to matches and the domestic rivalries are, are really important to supporters. I don't think it's flawed from a European perspective, and this is where you've got to understand where it's driven from. Is is the European teams look at the Premier League, you know, immensely jealously. That's what they want to create. They don't have it at La Liga. They don't have it in Serie, and they want some of that. And that's why it was no surprise that there were six teams from the, you know, from the Premier League and less teams from both Spain and Italy. But yeah, I think from a fan perspective, it would ultimately fault because I fundamentally don't think it's what people want. And more importantly, I think people would have seen the impact it had on the Premier League, which would have been so disastrous. I mean. The first game we had, which was against um, against Liverpool, which was good because it gave us the opportunity to to make a stander against it. That's exactly the type of game which would have been, which was a great game because you had a resurgence leads, you know, potentially preventing Liverpool from Europe, you know, the champions from getting European qualification in a game which meant a lot. In the world that the that the Liverpool ownership were envisaging, that game would have been a dead rubber because Liverpool would Liverpool would have already qualified for Europe, and their squad would have been so much stronger. Than us, they'd have won it. You know, they'd have won the game anyway. So I don't think it's what any any football fan wanted, and I think the footballing world told them that loud and clear. And now they're going to have to um, now they're going to have to think seriously about you know why their owners and what they want to achieve through their ownerships. Is there a will within the other fourteen then to enact punishment on the six that have threatened the, the security of, of the Premier League? Because it's it's a very fine balancing act as far as I can see it. There is, and 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 the, the balancing act is that none of the 14 have anything against the clubs involved in it. You know, we admire those clubs. You know, they're the clubs that, and I know we have big rivalries against, you know, almost all of them, but they're the clubs that Leeds United have been hoping to play against. You know, we've aspired to be as good as and to beat on a, on a regular basis. And they've got wonderful fan bases and they're global and, you know, we want to be playing against Manchester United and Liverpool. The issue is with the ownerships and the way the ownerships have behaved. And as has been proven in football for you know years and Leeds United have been a victim of this and and Luton Town have been a victim of this is you know how do you punish a club without punishing the, the the supporter base and from our perspective whilst we do think there will be sanctions against the clubs the most important sanction is going to be that they have to sign up to an agreement or to a charter going forward which means this can never happen again and that will be the biggest punishment and it'll be the biggest win for the 14 clubs who are trying to do the right thing. The elephant in the room from a Leeds perspective is that we've got part American ownership and they operate within the franchise model. So there's naturally a suspicion going to grow of American owners. So have you got a clear position from the 49ers on this? Very clear from uh, from both Parag and, and Jed. They have um, bought into the Premier League for exactly the reasons that, that we all love it as a product and, and, and a league. Um, so their approach couldn't be, couldn't be more, more different. And 
they understand the value of competition. They understand the value of the of, of the football pyramid. Obviously, they want to to maximise the collective rights, but they want to be d- done it to be done in a in a, in a fair um, fashion, which is which is based on a meritocracy and and not a cartel. Presumably, a fair bit of tension from them in those the days when it looked like it may happen as well. In terms of just the value of their investment was essentially going to I don't know half less than half probably it was going to be worth probably about twenty percent of what they actually had put in in the first place. So. I guess there was probably a bit of relief on that side of things. There was there was relief all around. I think the the good thing about the whole incident was was which the speed in which it unfolded. So it, it you know it, it lived for I think a day and a half longer than the badge. Lo- lo- exactly long <laughs> longer than the badge, which was just a mere morning. <laughs> um, but um, so it didn't. We didn't have a, a lot of time to to really address you know what it was gonna what it was gonna mean because it sort of it died before it ever it ever got started. And I think what we wanted to do was. At the game was just make a stand in the first match, sort of post the announcement, which was, and, and it was something the players really supported. You know, we spoke to Liam about it and he said, you know, Liam Cooper wants to play in Europe. That's been his dream. He wants to play at the highest level. So I think the players felt it was an attack against, you know, their hopes and dreams of uh, as players. And, you know, even though it was a very simple and sort of hastily planned gesture, and, you know, the t-shirts ended up all around the world. And I think the message really, really resonated. In terms of future development then and, I guess this is where the 49ers come in. How close are we now to stadium development? I mean, people may have heard you speaking on the, the Square Ball podcast. You're saying that maybe at the end of the second season, so maybe next summer, if uh, we are securing the Premier League, year three is when you will push the button on it. So can you add a bit more colour to that? So it's the, the work's taking, the work, the, the preliminary work is taking place in terms of designs and, and structure and budgets and, and how it's financed. It's a long project. It's longer because we want it to be an ambitious project. So there is, there were two roads. One was to sort of spruce up what we what we have and make it, you know, more workable for the, for the Premier League. And another is a much more structural, fundamental change to to build a stadium which we think is befitting of a of a Premier League team which can which can compete in you know in the top six year in year out. So it, it's a long and challenging process, and and it has to be balanced with our first priority, which is consolidation and delivering delivering on the pitch and at the moment you know with those decisions that we're having to make now around re-signing Marcelo strengthening the team and some of the longer term plans and, and we we want to do it in a, in a controlled way and I think other clubs potentially have taken their eyes off the ball on promotion and started to envision you know wonderful futures for themselves and then have found themselves at the wrong end of the table in a, in a relegation fight and for me you know priority next season is to you know if we finish 11th this season is to improve on that and we think we can. So it's, I guess it's risk versus reward is what you're saying. Exactly. So are we going to be pursuing the more ambitious path rather than tightening up what we've got? Because it feels like we've tightened it up as much as we could, really, Helen Road. Everybody's agreed that, that what we have is, isn't going to take us to where, to where we want to go. So it's, it's a matter of, um, of when rather than if. I, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, to <laughs> quietly usher you into a corner where you give us some details, but are we talking about wholesale redevelopment of most of the stadium there? Yeah, so... I- if you look at look at um, the stadiums that we need to benchmark ourselves against, they need it needs to be somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand to be financially competitive with other world class stadiums in the Premier League. We know we have the demand for that. We know that from our season ticket waiting list, from our hospitality waiting list, we know that Leeds as a city and as a county can sustain a a club at at, at fifty to sixty thousand. The location of the ground isn't being looked at. We're in a fantastic location right near the city centre. We have a horseshoe of, of land around the ground that we can expand back into, which is not a luxury that lots of other clubs have. The only challenging side is the Ellen Road side, where we are completely adjacent to the road. And, and so to move back 
that way is more challenging. And it also would it, um, impact the Ellen Road Cafe, which is where I get my lunch. So, <laughs> so you can't extend on that side, but on the other th- on the other three sides of the stadium, you can, and that's where you can get the the, the growth in capacity. The project works on a year by year basis, where you um, where you build over the top of one stand. While people are still sitting in it, the next season you move them into the upper tier and you complete the, the stand below. So there is a process where you don't lose capacity you know, year by year. And you can either do two stands at a time or take the stands you know, one, one by one. But the, you know, the visuals we're seeing, are they're really impressive. They're, they're something that everybody in the city would be proud of. We're getting a lot of support from the, from the city council, but we're still right at the early, uh, the early stages because first priority is, is maintain the Premier League status and then, and then we, can, we can build on that. How soon do you think we will see those as fans then and um, get these, even the, just the visuals? Well, what we've been very um, conscious of is not, in all areas of the club, is, is not sort of promising things that we're not sure we can deliver. And I think lots of clubs have brought out um, attractive virtual reality renders of their, of their stadium and fly-throughs and then never delivered against them or delivered against them 10 or 20 years later. We want to come to the fan base with a, with a proper consultation around what they want, allow them to, to input into that uh, in, into those designs and then deliver something which has you know, financing behind it and a clear timeline. And we're not there yet, but the vision is there and the work behind the scenes is taking place. In terms of other infrastructure, it's been good to see like the, the kit sales have probably gone through the roof this season. Um, you said when we spoke some time ago that you felt you hadn't quite got the, uh, the distribution and the numbers right because you, you had to uh, weigh up, would we be in the championship or would we be in the Premier League when you ordered the first set of Adidas kits? It's been a bit of a challenge this year, is it fair to say? Absolutely. That was... It, it was a real challenge. We we placed the kit order in November of the year before. So in November, um, I think that was when I was, you know, about the time I was being abused at QPR for, for, for not winning and the team were never going to go up. So I think I think we, we placed an order that was somewhere in between a championship order and a Premier League order to hedge it. We have had other, we've had other deliveries in, but we probably have, we missed the peak of demand because the order times just just didn't work and that's something we'll we'll fix for next year. And I think also, being brutally honest, we also probably underestimated the demand because Leeds United is, I mean, the number of shirts we're going to sell this year puts us way above every other club bar the top six and in, in some places up there with the top six. So the, the demand has just been astronomical. And I think part of that is, and other clubs have seen this, is, is due to lockdown and the fact that people can't come to the stadium. They want to show their affiliation through, uh, through kit sales. But it's been a hard year to predict because whilst adult kit sales have been great, kids' kit sales have been poor because kids aren't out playing football as much as they used to and going to camps and schools and things. So it's been, it's been a hard year to predict. I know it's frustrated some supporters and next year will categorically be better. John Bon Jovi got his though, which is good news. I saw that. Yes. How did John Bon Jovi get his? Do we have any insight? <laughs> I don't, I think I think you're, t- you're telling me you don't hang around with rock stars. I think he's always been a big fan. <laughs> this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Phil's top 10 signings since 2006, the time that he's been covering Leeds United. Number 10 last week was Paddy Kiznorbo. Who's your number nine, Phil? Number nine is Robert Snodgrass, joker-in-chief at Thorpe Arch and a man who had the right old talent for prank phone calls. He was a real find. He was well thought of in, in Scotland, but certainly in England, he had very little in the way of a of a, a vast reputation. He was doing well at Livingston, but he was, you know, he's from inner city Glasgow. He was very raw. He was a long way short. I think he would admit himself of, of really understanding what you needed to do to maintain a, a long professional career. But we had McAllister in charge at the time, who, who obviously knew a fair amount about the Scottish game and, and it highlighted Snodgrass as a, a really big talent and somebody that Leeds should go for, given the fact that, that he was moving for a pretty low fee. They, they, Leeds never confirmed exactly how much it was, but it was very low six figures from from my understanding. And there the, are some funny stories behind the move. At the time, Roberto Di Matteo at MK Dons was trying to get Snodgrass as well and, and had taken him there to have a look. Leeds were interested in him. McAllister had suggested to, to Snodgrass that he come to, to Thorpe Arch for a trial, you know, to try out. And Snodgrass basically chanced his arm by pretending to McAllister that he'd been offered a contract down at MK Dons, which he, which he hadn't. And there was this kind of risk of being left with, with absolutely nothing. But McAllister was so set on signing him that the deal was done and, and Snodgrass signed. And, and down he came in his um, in his maroon Hyundai Coupe, um, which got him a, a good ribbon to begin with. And then he, he changed that for a, a white Mercedes, which became known as the, the Magaluf, Magaluf Taxi. The, the, uh, uh, the hairdresser's car, I think it was. That's but, right. That's right. right. Yeah. I think it was Dave Prutton who nicknamed it the, the Magaluf Taxi. And it, he, he got a, he got a good, good bit of ribbon for that as well. He was extraordinarily talented with Snodgrass. And I, I always think of Eddie Gray saying prior to the, the Bielsa era that, in his opinion, there was no better player who had come through Leeds uh, in the, the, the era post-relegation from the Premier League than than Snodgrass. You'll remember those T-shirts that they had uh, that were made. I, I have no idea who by, but keep calm and pass it to Snodgrass, which is kind of how it became towards the end of his time at Leeds, when it all went stale under Grayson and, and when... Warnock came in, but Snodgrass was rapidly losing faith with the way things were going at Leeds. There was that sense that any time Leeds played poorly, they were only going to get something out of the game if Snodgrass, Snodgrass won it for them or, or came up with a goal or came up with a, a little bit of magic. And I spoke to, I, I put him in you know, my Leeds United best 11 of the, the, the 2010s. And I spoke to Glenn Snodden, who was one of Bielsa's coaches, one of his assistants. And, and he said, look, I can't deny that there were times where you were standing on the side of the pitch thinking, somebody just give it to Snoddy because nobody's doing anything here. And if you give him the ball, at least there's a chance of some brilliance or a little bit of genius coming from his boots. And and at the price he came in, again, part of the promotion squad and, and a big you know big factor in that, that side who went up in 2009 and 10. But I think just to watch on his own and, and individually was a bit of a joy. It was Bradley Johnson who we interviewed for our podcast, The Extra Ball, uh, a little while ago, and it was him that was telling us it was nicknamed the hairdresser's car because Johnson flat-shared with Snodgrass for a bit and Peter Sweeney was in the same block, wasn't he? 
And he said that um, Snodgrass just, he was com- basically not even housebroken, didn't have a clue how to cook. He had to ask Peter Sweeney how to cook pasta. And um, Peter Sweeney said, well, you can tell when it's done. Stick it in a pan of boiling water. When it's done, you throw it at the wall. And if it sticks, then it's cooked. And they said they went into Snodgrass's flat not long afterwards, and there's just pasta all over the walls. <laughs> <laughs> they they were thick as thieves, him and, and Johnson. I, I once got a call from the old head of comms at Leeds, Paul Jews. He said to me, why am I getting a phone call from somebody telling me that you've told them to get in touch with me to get free tickets at Leeds? I said, absolutely no idea. And to begin with, I don't think he believed me. I think he, he was thinking, what's going, you know, what are you playing at? And I said to him, look, Jeezy, I honestly have not, I haven't spoken to anybody about tickets. I, I don't know. I don't know where this is coming from and I, and I don't know what you mean. So he hung up and anyway, I got a call the next morning. He said, I think I owe you in a bit of a, a bit of an apology. Um, someone tells me that I've been getting pranked for the last couple of days by Snowgrass and Johnson <laughs> on um, prank phone calls. And, and I mean, we, when I was chatting, we did a piece on, on Snowgrass and I was chatting to Dave Prutton about him. And he said that one of Snowgrass's biggest talents away from the pitch was his ability to keep prank phone calls going for so long without <laughs> giving the game away. He said there was somebody, he didn't name names, but he said there was somebody at Sheffield United that he phoned up to pretend that he was getting called up to the, the Scotland squad. And he w- w- was saying things to him like, um, so we need your suit size. And the player, the player said, okay, no problem, I'll get that over to you. He said, um, we also need your tie size. The player says, tie size, is that is that a thing? I thought they were all just the same. You just wrap them around your neck and Snodgrass saying to him, "No, no, no, no. This is a thing now. You've got to measure yourself, and you've got to, you've got to work out, you know, what your what your proper tie size is." And you could imagine whoever it was going away and thinking, "Right, well, this is really serious. You know, I need to work all this out." And and obviously they they were just pulling his leg. But yeah, renowned renowned for his jokes and renowned for his ability. Brilliant footballer. It was heartbreaking when he went, wasn't it? It was, but I think. He gains an extra bit of credit as well for firing a few shots on the way out in the way that he he criticised the club for selling Johnny Howson. And it felt like with Snodgrass, if the club had shown some ambition, he would have probably been quite happy to stay. But at the end, he just got sick of it like everyone else did. Well, that is your number nine in your top 10 signings since 2006, Phil. Join us next week and we'll find out who is number eight. Final couple of away games of the season um, on the way in the next few days. Then, Angus, dead rubbers just like the European Super League. At £2 million a place, they are far from dead rubbers. It's, it's a lot of money, isn't it? How many times have we been on the telly, actually, this season? Because it's been a bit confused, because normally you get, you know, one, it's like £1.1 million per appearance, guaranteed 10, isn't it? And then everything above that is extra money. So where, where are we in that? So we are, so because, all, because every game's been on TV, they split them between ones which have what's called a facility fee, which is when you get paid, and ones which have made up, have been put on for COVID. The facility fees, those are the normal broadcast slots, such as Sunday afternoon, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever we get put on TV, my first question to the club secretary is, does it come with a facility <laughs> fee or not? Because it's a big difference. We have had 24 games on TV. I think we budgeted for 16 on the basis that the least attractive club to get 10 and we thought we'd be, you know, we thought we'd be above that. But to get 24, I think the last time I looked, Man City were on 25 and Man United were on 26. So it puts us right in the top echelons of, of being box office. And that's clearly, a, um, you know, because we've done well from a footballing perspective of a mid-table and they want to show teams doing well, but also because of the style of football we've we've played. So it's been great from a, from an exposure perspective and great from a financial perspective. That's crazy because I think the highest last season was 27 overall. So we're right up there then. It, I mean, they've, they've picked games, they picked some of the games which were, which were, you know, I didn't think would be seen as being particularly attractive, but because of the way we've been playing. And I think it bodes well for next season as well, because I think as we've put ourselves into the into the sort of group of 
of the big glamorous matches, Leeds United versus Manchester United, I think will get shown twice on TV next year. Leeds United versus Arsenal will get shown twice. So it's it, it's very helpful, but it's a it's a testament to the players and what Marcelo's achieved. So is twenty four is that the total for the season then, or does that include because Burnley's one of them, isn't it? Uh, twenty four, I think, is the total for the season. Right. The okay. Even still, congratulations to Marcelo, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and everyone <laughs> who works with him. Um, when it comes to Burnley, then what are we expecting from this one? Uh, they had the the run of us, I think, didn't they? A little bit in the in the home fixture, albeit we beat them. I think the momentum that the team, with the exception of Brighton, the momentum that the team's built up over the last six to eight games has been has been superb, and it, it gives me confidence that we we could comfortably win the last the last three. But what Brighton shows is that if you don't if you don't turn up even slightly, then it it, it doesn't go your way. I actually think Brighton are a lot better team than than uh, than people give them credit for, and I think on expected goals, I think they are they're they're a top half of the table side. But we know that if the, if the team don't turn up, we won't get anything out of the next three games because that's the way the Premier League works. But the boys are, are fired up. They want to end the season on a winning streak. Um, there are some uh, bonuses that they can trigger for finishing positions, which um, right. <laughs> which they mentioned fairly regularly. So I don't think it's lost on them. But actually, that's irrelevant because the level of commitment and professionalism that the team show week in, week out, we could need to stay up versus West Brom or it could be an end of, end of season dead rubber. And I think I think you get the same running, the same commitment. In fact, I think if you look at last season, the game that the team ran most for the whole year was away at Derby when I know for certain matches Click was hung over, but I think some of the rest of them were as well. But actually, Marcelo explained it in the team. They, the team relaxed and play their natural game. And when they relax and play their natural game, they run more than any other in any other match. So I don't think you'll see any lack of commitment over the last three matches. The Brighton game, was there a general sense that it had got away from us then? What was the reaction within the club to that one? The disappointment because the standards that we set are so high. If anybody sort of feels in the, in, there is no sense of of um, complacency in the club or or smug or smugness about where we you know where we are. Marcelo set the target to compete at the highest level. We recruited to compete at, at the highest level, and you know a defeat against Brighton is just viewed as unacceptable by the board, by Marcelo, and most importantly by the by the team. They all felt that they'd they let themselves down. It's very nice to. To be able to leave Brighton, not knowing that that it, there was going to be no um, collateral damage from that defeat, and it didn't really matter. But I don't think the team see it that way. And yeah, Southampton as well, fans back in, but it's a Tuesday tea time kickoff. It's a slightly strange kickoff time where the two worlds feel like they're colliding at the minute. The league were trying to, to rather than just have one game with fans, they wanted to have two to to ensure that there was a level of, uh, of sporting integrity. But yeah, strange kickoff time with a strange number of fans returning, and I think um, I think actually both that game. And the West Brom game will probably be a disappointment to most supporters who, who attend it. And for the, those who didn't weren't successful in the ballot this week, I think they should look forward to next season because when we come back and celebrate being back together for the first time in a year and a half with a team in the Premier League, I think that really will be the special occasion. I have missed out in the ballot. I am I am trying to convince myself. I didn't really want to go anywhere. Your mindset going into this was, I'm not that bothered, it won't be the same. But then as, as it's crept closer and closer and then the ballot's open, you've decided you want it to go, haven't you? Well, if it's if it's there as an option, you've got to take it. I mean, but I mean, I mean I've been at Ellen Road when there have been seven thousand people there, eight thousand people there, and it wasn't great to be honest. And this will be worse because everyone's going to be spaced out. There's going to be masks. There's going to be delays getting in and stuff. It, it feels like it'll probably be a bit of a pain in the ass to be honest. But I would have, I'd guess, I'd have still gone. The closest I've got this year is my vaccine in the um, what's it called pavilion. Pavilion. That's the word I was after. Yeah, it's been so long I forgot what the place <laughs> looks like, and I can't even think of the right word. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, we look forward to August and I'm, I'm sure it'll be absolutely fantastic. But it's going to be 
it's going to feel good, I think, to have the fans back in, surely from the club's point of view, even if it is a bit of a pain getting all the logistics in place. For me, it is logistically challenging, but it's for me, it's and for actually for all our staff. This week, we've got all our box office staff are back for the first time. So they've been on furlough for a year and a half and they're now back and they're selling tickets and they're dealing with people's complaints and issues. And it feels like we're becoming a football club again. So for us, it's an important step to show to the league and to the government that football fans can return safely. And it's a it's a big step back to normality. And whilst it will be challenging on the day, if it brings full crowds back a game closer, then it'll be worthwhile. When we do eventually go to full crowds, is there any indication of any changes that will have to happen around it? Will bars and stuff be open or is it is it going to maybe be a case of a, a sort of slower step towards it, do you think? I'm hoping and we're hoping that across the summer with the lessening of restrictions, we come back in a way which is as, as normal and as, as much like it was before as, as it can be. What we've learned over the, the process is that social distancing doesn't really work in, in, in football stadia. So when you look at um, what we're having to do, at, at, so if, if the government kept in the rule of, of a metre, then effectively the most your capacity can be is 25% because you have to have two seats empty either side of you. You have to have the row in front and the row behind empty. You can't have people in the concourses. You can't have bars, bars in operation and actually, we have to keep most of the West End shut because that's the red zone for the media and the players. So for me, it's almost starting to become binary that it's either back to normal properly or the country's in a fairly bad way if we can't, if we can't return. There isn't a great deal to say really about these, these two fixtures because there's not uh, a lot at stake other than we expect absolute maximum output from Marcelo and his, and his team, which I'm absolutely sure they will give us because, um, because they do. It does, it does feel like we're looking to the future and we're now sort of taking stock of the season. So... Does it feel like a successful season from within the club, even though we're not quite at the finish line? Yeah, it, it feels successful because our, whilst we had a, a stretch objective of delivering what we have delivered, the primary one is just stay up and, and you can't underestimate the risk. And whilst we've done so brilliantly, it's easy to forget about the fact that, that you know most teams get relegated in their first two seasons. And what we need to do with Leeds United is build a platform where that's, that can never happen again. And there are teams in the league who've you know, who've done that, like like Everton. So outside the top six, where you know Everton have, have never really been threatened with, with relegation. Because of the size of our fan base and the passion of our supporters and the city that we're in, we have the ability to create a commercial foundation, which means, and the number of times we'll be on TV, to create a commercial foundation which should elevate us over time from ever having to be in that relegation battle. And if we can do that, it means we can plan with confidence every season to being a Premier League team rather than what the majority of the Premier League do, which is looking over their shoulder and thinking what a disaster it's going to be if they go down. That's the vision and we've taken an important step this season to do it. What we're delighted about is is the way we've done it in the way we've won hearts and minds in, in the way we've approached the game and the way we've played, the way the players have handled themselves, the way Marcelo's handled it themselves. I think the, the pride we've given back to the supporters after 16 years of perhaps not always being able to be proud of the club in terms of the way we've turned up at games and and the way we've played matches. So there's an immense sense of of satisfaction at the club. There's a real disappointment that supporters couldn't have been there because there are just matches which would have just been, you know, fan, I mean, you know, if, if Stuart Dallas could have run to the away end, you know, at Man City, that would have just made it and the and, and the scenes and the the, the arrests. The, arre- the arrests <laughs> and, and, and the and the injuries that that would have would have happened in that away end. And that and that's a real that's a real disappointment. It's something that I think's been stolen. You know, Liam talked about uh the moment of promotion being stolen from the players, and it's it's not something we can ever really we can ever really give give back to them. But uh, I think all the players, and you know, I'm really pleased that we're going to be able to keep this group together because hopefully we get a you know a big match early in the early in the season next season, and and we can have all those players can come out in front of a packed Ellen Road and and get 
the adulation they deserve for promotion and their first season and, and, and celebrate with the fans. And actually also, you know, we to, need to remember a number of the, the legends we lost across the last year as well. I think that's going to be a, a special occasion. So in terms of building on that group, then I would get shot if we didn't ask you about transfers because that's what everyone's itching to know about. Um, it's the thing that gets uh, gets fans excited, isn't it? We're not far off now, the the summer window and how are plans looking? I think we're in a good place. The The key, and you would expect me to say this, but the, the key for everyone to remember is the strategy very much was to to invest in a team which could make us successful for two to three years. And I think we did that. And I think if you look at... I think there's still much, still more to become from Rafina. You know, he will be a better player after um, you know one season in the Premier League. There is more to come from Rodrigo. I don't think we've had uh, Lorente and Cop playing in the in in the same team at all. In fact, I don't think those four players have been on the pitch at the same time for more than about twenty minutes all season. I think Ilan will grow into being one of the best goalkeepers in the world if he if he isn't there already. And I think our core of players, the people we've talked about, Stuart and Liam and Luke and 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 Calvin, who's proven himself to be a world-class player and I think we'll do that at the Euros. So all the fans should should remember, you know, we've got a great base of a team which 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 we can grow. We will be seeking to to strengthen it and there's some obvious areas where it needs to be strengthened. It's challenging to get players that can play to the level that Marcelo plays at. and actually we, I was sitting down with Victor the other day and we were looking at some of the physical stats and some of our physical stats are, you know, from our players are better than anybody else in Europe. So I, I don't know what you saw but you know, if you look at uh, Yards advanced with the ball in a game. Luke Ayling is the best in Europe ahead of Lionel Messi, which I'm sure is not something that's lost on him. <laughs> He'll be referencing in, uh, in as, as much as he can. But but we really have set a high benchmark to recruit against, and we need to make sure that people that we that we bring in because we still want to manage the club sustainably from a financial perspective are truly better and build on what we currently have. And um, we were looking at the lineup the other day, and even across the Premier League. I'm not sure there's many teams who boast four centre halves as good as our four centre halves in terms of you know the absolute strength and depth. If, depth, if you if you and you know we have four centre halves, so you could pick any two from that four, and they've delivered all all season. So definitely the intent to strengthen, but I think it's going to be done in a in a judicious and focused way. And we should remember, you know, we shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater because what we've got is a is a side which has finished you know, will finish halfway in the league and has the potential, I think, to to finish four or five places higher. Can you believe I've made it this far without mentioning Rodrigo de Paul? I was going to say, just ask him about Rodrigo <laughs> de Paul. Get it out of the way. <laughs> I, I don't, without, if it, if it wasn't for listening to this, to, to, to the square ball, I don't think I'd have heard Rodrigo de Paul's name ever, <laughs> um, which gives you an insight to how far along we are in those in those discussions. Um, if we had the money, I think we would just buy him just to shut you guys up. Um, but um, It'd be a nice gift to give us. But I think, um, I, I don't think that one has any legs. <laughs> What does have legs then? Can you give us an insight into? I mean, because we want just just a little something. Give us a little soup son of something to get excited about here. So I think there will be there'll be two streams of of, of recruitment as there were um, last year. There will be people who we think can immediately contribute to the first team, and I think the positions based on the players that that, that will will probably be leaving as those positions are fairly are fairly obvious and won't 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 give us lead to any surprises. And then there'll also be a stream of recruitment at the under twenty three level where it doesn't get as much coverage, but I think uh, Geldhart, uh, Greenwood, um, Drama, Somerville um, have all got you know huge potential and, and are starting to push for a first-team place. And so there'll be some recruitment at that level as well. 
Stop ask, answering like a politician, so, please. So to be vague. Just give, just give you know, me something. Do, do you know on. what? You probably just get Victor on, I, and, just, and he, will, he will accidentally tell you. <laughs> you've just told me that we've been on TV 24 times and you've budgeted for 16. I make that about, what, an extra 8, 10, 12 million pounds? Where is it going? Spend all these Premier League millions for us now. <laughs> Spend it tomorrow. There, there will there will certainly be some in there'll be certainly be some investments and I think if we can get even close to the level of recruitment that we've done across the last year you'll all be very pleased. You really do need to go into politics <laughs> when you're done with this game. Honestly, ridiculous. Right, predictions then for these next couple of games. I say six points. I think I said three. I don't know. Burnley just worry me a bit because of of how it went earlier in the season, and I don't know. It feels like they they've got a style that jars against ours. And I'll go for a politician's four. <laughs> Very good. So that does just leave, doesn't it, the West the West Brom game and then we're done for the season. I'm not going to show what I'm going to worry about this summer. It all seems to be quite calm and in hand. Are you worried? I'm not worried. I, I think we're in a really, really good position. I'm, um, I think it's the only thing that worries me is that we've, now that we're much better at football, we've got so many players going off to the uh, to the Euros. Um, so the key is that they all come back fit and healthy and pretty much almost straight into Marcelo's pre-season. But the... Um, the plan's really strong and I'm, I'm excited about next year and excited about getting the fans back and actually having a, a Premier League season that we can all celebrate together. Fingers crossed. You can get in touch with the show on Twitter at The Phil Hayes Show and we'll have Josh Warrington on with us next week as well. Slight different uh, change of tone, do you think? Could you go round for round with, with Josh? Uh, I certainly couldn't go round for round with him and you, you'll probably get some more direct opinions from him as well so it'd be much more entertaining. You can subscribe to The Athletic for a price of three ninety nine a month at the minute for six months. It's 40% off the full price. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for that and we'll see you next time. The Phil Hay Show.